Lucky 13, folks. Lucky 13. It's March. It's reading aloud. I'm Nate Cordry. I'm your host. Thanks so much for tuning in uh, to another episode. Uh, we had an amazing book club last week. It was great. Mike Postalakis, who you can follow on Twitter at, uh, at Mike Postalakis, uh, was great, as was uh, Jillian Smolinski at Boobs Radley. Uh, God, they're so, they were so great. And, and I want to say that it was because the book was great, but it really was because those guys um, had a really sharp point of view about the corrections. And it's a fun book to talk about because it's, um, well, b- because there's a lot. And it's, accessi- and it's accessible. It's about things that we can all sort of jive on, that families are problematic. Um, and I just love Franzen so much. I think he's one of the greats. So those two guys were great. And it was such a fun book club. So if you haven't checked out that episode, it's, it's last week's episode. Uh, download it and listen to it. Even though maybe you haven't read The Corrections. Listen to it anyway, because it's, it's fun. It's compelling to listen to uh, the three of us talk about a book that was, um, that was great. We all loved it. And it's fun to, to listen to people sort of get excited and celebrate a piece of art that they liked. Uh, speaking of art, there's a live show this Sunday. Uh, if you're listening to this on Friday when this episode drops in March, March 8th, Sunday, is a live show at 7.30 at the UCB Theater on Franklin. Come down. Check it out. We had a couple people last month come down who were, who didn't know of the live show, who were just fans of the podcast. Um, you do that, too. And it's only $5, and there's some amazing readers. Molly Ephraim, Faye Wolf, um, myself, uh, Nelson Franklin, John Ross Bowie. There's some great Mike Still. Uh, some really great talent this Sunday uh, reading really hilarious pieces. So it's $5 at the UCB Theater on Franklin in Hollywood, March 8th, 7, uh, 7.30. Come check it out. Uh, be there or be a square. Um, and this first piece today is from our last UCB show, which was in January. This really hilarious piece that I can't credit to anyone specifically, which is a heartbreaker. So I credit the entire institution, The Onion. The Onion commentaries are some of the best comedy writing on the internet. If you aren't passing Onion comment, like everyone passes Onion headlines and articles like amongst each other, but the commentaries are so good. And if you read them all, you start to hear sort of similarities. I feel like it's probably the same three or four people who are writing them over and over again, but they're so good. And this piece specifically jumped out at me. I had... um, someone read it in my very first live show uh, four years ago and I wanted to bring it back and so I asked uh, Kevin Sussman to come in and read it and he just he absolutely destroyed Kevin is a wonderful actor and comedian and writer Um, most recently he's probably uh, gets the most attention for Big Bang Theory he plays the guy who owns the comic book shop that all the main characters buy their comics at Um, and his name is Kevin Sussman he's an amazing amazing actor comedian poor guy broke his leg in a bike accident like a traumatic break he enters the stage using a walker, and it is hard to watch. And you'll hear uh, in a moment when he explains why he has it. Um, poor guy took a serious spill, was in the hospital, I think on Christmas Day, like getting his bones reset. Jesus Christ. Anyway, this is an amazing piece from The Onion, read brilliantly by Kevin Sussman. Kevin! Kevin Sussman, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> This is not a prop. I'm gonna get that straight. This is a part of me. I broke my leg. So don't wait for this to come into it. This is merely my mode of transportation. Any of you cocksuckers feel like a new fucking Neil Simon play? by Neil Simon. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I got to thinking the other day, I was looking through uh, the countless Tony Awards, Emmy Awards, honorary degrees, and Pulitzer Prizes I've received over my celebrated 52-year career. And it hit me, you know what? It's been quite a while since I, Neil Simon, lit up the Great White Way with one of my bittersweet theatrical confections, so how about it, assholes? Any of you sons of bitches feel like a new show from yours fucking truly? That's right, I'm talking about a brand new shit-hot piece of certified Neil Simon gold. Any of you cocksuckers up for that? Because, Christ, I'm more than happy to bang home another beloved Broadway classic. Maybe a wistful ensemble play where a guy calls his mom, Ma. Dad, Pop. How about one where a couple of kids in knee socks listen to a Brooklyn Dodgers game on an old console radio? Oh, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Maybe a wartime dramedy with snappy one-liners disguising the true unspoken pain burdening America's greatest generation. Hey, look, you name it, I'll get that shit up on a marquee faster than you can say odds-on Tony favorite. Hey, come on, come on. You telling me you're gonna turn down a goddamn heartwarming two-act about a white Jewish middle-class Depression-era family struggling to make ends meet through laughter and tears? Give me a fucking break, you're gonna turn down that shit. You want some of that? Because I can pump out that stage play and the adapted screenplay in my goddamn sleep. Okay, you fucks. Let's take care of the basics. New York, done. Traditional values, done. How about a father walks out and the kid has to learn how to be the man of the house? And then at the end, the father comes back and they have to negotiate that dynamic. Or better yet, I'll, I'll, I'll set it in the aftermath of the Second World War, and the family also has to deal with the emotional fallout from Cousin Maury's service on the front. Maybe uh, the dad had to flee the pogroms, works in the garment business, say he's got indigestion, call him Barney, and the kid wants to be a writer. That took me five seconds to come up with, I can tell you stupid fuckers already drooling at the thought of it. And, and, and here's the thing, dumb fucks. I can serve it up any number of ways. It could take place over dinner. It could take place over three Passovers. It could even be set during the golden age of television. It makes no difference to me, assholes. Well, maybe it's a writer's room for a 1960s late night show called the Ronnie Goodman Hour or some bullshit I could seriously give a rat's ass. What are we gonna do for the year, 35? 43? How about I split the difference, set the thing in fucking 39? Have them struggling with the anguish of adolescence, sibling rivalry, and thwarted ambition with borscht belt humor as a coping mechanism. So in a storyline about an unlikely pair, one guy's a slob, the other guy's neat. One sister's got her shit together, the other one's kind of nuts. Boom, finish. That sound okay to you, shitheads? Jesus. I can practically hear the critics lining up right now to suck my dick and call me a living fucking treasure. Right, let me make a few phone calls. You want Matthew Broderick in it? Easy fucking peasy Broderick will be the town. Richard Dreyfus or Jonathan Silverman will co-star with Mercedes Rule or Lori Metcalf or whoever the fuck is the mom. We'll probably get Mel Brooks on board too. Why the hell not? Got all those fuckers in my back pocket. They'll do it. <laughs> Christ, for Neil Kennedy Center honoree Simon. <laughs> They'll do fucking backflips if I ask them. <laughs> Put it up at the Lyceum or at the Palace. Or you know what? Maybe we got a 36 week run at the Neil fucking Simon Theater. <laughs> and I beg another couple Tony noms. <laughs> And a Drama Desk Award. Holy hell, do you realize how easy this is for me to a joke? This is? I mean, no matter what, it's money in the bank. As soon as that thing gets the old New Yorker tug job, the cash will start rolling in. Break in five mil, easy. Pick me up a nice ten-bed mansion in Bel Air and a new typewriter I can whip my dick against. <laughs> Crank out another box office hit, whatever the fuck I want. 
So what do you say? You dumb shits ready for a new jewel of modern theater? That's good. I don't even give a flying fuck either way. <laughs> Kevin Sussman <laughs> reading from the voice of Neil Simon. Oh, God, that shit really makes me laugh. And Kevin, when I asked him to do that piece for the show, he had known that piece before. And he's actually, he's a big theater guy and loves Neil Simon. So he brought an extra layer of, of special to that piece. So uh, thank you to Kevin, first and foremost. And thank you to uh, The Onion, commentary writers. Um, I wish I could credit the exact person who wrote that, but you, you have to go to The Onion on a regular basis and read their commentaries because they're fucking hilarious. That, that again, was recorded at the UCB back in January. Um, come see us this Sunday, March 8th at 7.30, um, and experience live reading aloud. Roby Clark is my guest today. His independent bookshop and print shop in Highland Park, which is in uh, East Los Angeles, is called the Pop Hop, and he's a he's a small a small business owner, and he deserves and demands our respect. He should be celebrated and admired. Roby Clark, thank you for coming to Reading Aloud. Nate, thank you for having me. This is a it's a real treat. You own a small business, yes, and it's a bookshop. Book, yeah. I I usually say bookstore. I guess there's not much of a difference there, but yeah. How many people told you not to do that? <laughs> Oh, nobody told me to do it, and everyone that I told I was doing it told me not to. Everybody. Everybody. So, almost, yeah. Except for, um, you know, people that smell like cats and, you know, really, really artistic. Uh, sure. And, you know, maybe more senior individuals. But, yeah, by and large, it was, it was, not, it was not a decision that I, I got a lot of support for. And what was their what, what was their thinking in, in telling you that you shouldn't that this was not a smart move? Well, I mean, there's the common wisdom that books are dying, and also, I mean, this was when I started the store or when I started, you know, hatching plans for the store. That was right when the iPad had sort of making its big splash. I think it was like really huge, um, and then Kindle was hot on its heels, and what the other the Nook. So there really, it, you know, I think people had been predicting the death of books for a long time, and now we were seeing this actually happen. We were seeing the, the vehicle for the death of books unleashed. Um, I remember distinctly watching Charlie Rose and some tech writer was like, look, when you put your finger, it looks like the page is turning. <laughs> and he was totally blown away by that. And I was like, dude, that's... That's, That's a very a simple animation. Yeah. I could write that code in 10 fucking and, minutes. And he was like, and you go back and it goes back a little bit, but then you go forward and it goes forward. And I was like, I was, I literally thought he was kidding. Is that what it's going to take to yeah. ruin books? Sure. I mean, that was a, easy. Like, what is it? 30,000 year old technology. Let's ditch, ditch that crap. Got an <laughs> iPad. It's shiny. And it's, uh, where did the idea um, for the shop come from? Like, how long have you had this had the idea to open this shop? Oh, I mean, I the space. It was a, a true example of the cart going before the horse. I got the space. I was in mm. uh, Highland Park, which, by the way, I have to take you to task for something that's northeast Los Angeles, not east. Los My Angeles. apologies. Well, you're gonna get letters. I'm just I telling will. you right now, and I'll write back to those letters. Sweet. I like a involved yeah radio host. Um, uh, I was working up there for Outpost for Contemporary Art, which used to be its own nonprofit. Now it's a, a program in the Armory up in Pasadena, and I was next door to. So okay, basically, it's it's a building that has offices upstairs, but then there are four retail spots downstairs. Yeah, that was their uh, Cafe de Leche, which is sort of a cornerstone of the Highland Park transition. Yeah, it's it's, it's a lot of people say it's the, the business that. Sparked it all. Yeah. And then there was Christie Engel Gallery and Outpost, which is where I was working. And then uh, insurance office. She also does notary. Her name's Yolanda. And she's the lady who runs the building. She mm -hmm. is ostensibly the owner. 
So we struck up a rapport. She was right next to Outpost. Her cat would wander in sometimes. I'd, you know, take care of her cat, bring it back to her. We just seemed to get along really well. And when the gallery, you know, the gallery owner decided, oh, I'm going to move on, Yolanda just said, hey, do you want to take the space? And I didn't really know what to do. My first impulse was just to do a print studio because I'm a printmaker and you can never have too much space. And it, But it's, it is almost too much space for a print studio. And it's so well located. Yeah. Like it's such a prime spot. It seemed like sort of a, a selfish way to use that space. Like I don't think it's cool to have a storefront and then have it closed. It just seems like that's not honoring the community. So what would honor the community? I was asking around and the best suggestion I got was bookstore. I've loved books since I was a kid. I My mom will tell anyone that asks her. My crib was always full of them. She had to I would yell at her if I tried if she tried to take them out. Wow. Um, these were picture books, though. Sure. Not high literature, but whatever. Um, and that was it. I would just start going around to other booksellers and saying, hey, what do you think about this? Is is it reasonable? I went to um, Libro Schmibros in Boyle Heights. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is more of a... Um, it's like a collective almost. It's a lending library slash bookstore. Right. Um, and he he encouraged me. So what were the first six months like when you opened when you opened the shop? Uh there was a lot of excitement. I I I feel kind of bad joking around saying that nobody thought that it was a good idea. I mean, of course there are other yeah. people who love books and they were super into it. And so there was a lot of enthusiasm. But you take that to a, like a small business loan, like a loan man. Oh. They're going to be like, are you fucking crazy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did Kickstarter. Oh, they, okay. And I, I you know, I, it's, it's amazing. I, 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 wow. People came out of the woodwork. People that I never would have imagined yeah. um, donated. Right. Old bosses that I thought hated me and, <laughs> you know, people that, you know, uh, a guy who runs a record label that I thought, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought at all. I just sent the the request out to my whole email list, and it was really interesting what came back. So there was enthusiasm for sure, but it was also, you know, tempered a little bit. We didn't exactly know if it was going to be a success in the long run or if it was just going to be kind of a fun experiment. That must have been a really sort of inspiring time when you you put yourself out there and said, I want to make this happen, and people responded. Yeah. No. It must have been a thrill. It was. It was um I remember our first like we had a soft opening in April, but then we really kind of announced our presence in May and had like a hard open May 1st. And it was huge. I mean, people I, there's, you know, tons and tons of people in the store wow. that first day. People came from all over. And I think it is enough of a novelty at this point if you're going to open a bookstore People come from far and wide. Um, people from Riverside were there. Wow! People, you know, uh, it was it was interesting. So there's a, there's an enormous amount of like commute like grassroots support if you open a small independent bookstore. Yeah. At least at least in the beginning, people are going to show up and like help you as much as they can. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's the little guy. It's the David yeah. Goliath thing. I think yeah. Barnes and Noble serves a need. But on the other hand, it's not its not really a place that you feel is an actual place. Like, it's not a community. It's, no. It's uh, an entity. It's like McDonald's. It's very consistent. You always know what you're going to get when you go in there. But right. on the other hand, you always know what you're going to get when you go in there. There's not a lot of surprises. Whereas I think one of the perks of being a small business owner is that you get to sort of you, – you, you have to balance – what you're how serving your customer with expressing yourself as a person. So that store is sort of an extension of your personality. And people, I think, like that. They like the, the idea that they can go there and see an aspect of, say, a bookstore, the idea of a bookstore that they necessarily haven't seen yet. Yeah. What is the biggest threat to a shop like yours? We're really like Yolanda is an amazing individual. She... Um, just as extraordinarily supportive of the people that are in her building that she believes in. Yeah. Um, so I don't have some of the same threats. I, I think by like, uh, generally speaking, if you are in my position, you're going to really have to worry about your landlord jacking up the rent. The area, by the way, is in a huge transition right now. It's insane. 
um, every week there's something new. And so, I, you know, it's <laughs> capitalism dictates that you've got to get the most out of the yeah. situation. And <clears throat> yeah. I, landlords will jack up prices. We've heard of rents going up, you know, by 300% in some cases. Holy shit. And, you know, you can sympathize with somebody wanting to get the most out of their investment. But on the other hand, it's like if somebody's already in there and they're already part of the community, are, aren't you kind of killing something? In yeah. A way? What are we doing here? Yeah. Like, why do you own this building? And how are you – like, you're part of this community. You're part of this neighborhood. And, and – I understand that this we're in a capitalist society, but you have to. There's something you need to honor. Yeah, and that's great. You're lucky that you have Yolanda, who's supporting the yeah. community no, and I, the business. Y- yeah, Yolanda's the patron saint of, if not pop up, the entire uh, Highland Park community. What makes your your um, your shop special and different from other small um, small bookstores? Uh, well, we we have. <laughs> The promise starting out was that it would be a place where that balanced um, carrying books, reading books, celebrating books, and making things or even books. Yeah. Um, and that, that was a, a pretty tough promise to fulfill right out of the gate, but we're getting much, much closer. Um, I've We've gotten closer and closer every year to a, a genuine partnership with LA Zine Fest, which – um, I think probably will have happened by the time this airs, but it's every year it's February 15th and it's every town has, every big city has a zine fest. And for people who don't know what zines are, it's small handmade or self-produced pamphlets, yeah. books. They can take a wide variety of shapes, but it's a, a self-made book, essentially self-published book. Um, every town had one. I mean, there was San Francisco, Seattle, uh, I think San Diego, New York, and LA. There was just this sort of lack, and the I think it was 2012. I hope it was 2012. Otherwise, I'm a jerk. Uh, these four ladies said, "We're going to do this," and yeah. I don't know how they pulled it off because it was huge wow. right out of the gate. I mean, wow. I think it, they really were answering a need. They're answering a, a desire of the people. Yeah, um, but. It was at the last bookstore upstairs before they kind oh. of filled it with a bunch of stuff. So it yeah. was empty hallways at that point. But, I mean, it was crammed. You had to – it was assholes and elbows. You had to inch your way through wow. sideways to get How anywhere. Cool. Uh, Henry Rollins, I think, spoke. Wow. Um, there was just a lot of enthusiasm for it. Uh, and I knew as, when I was there, I want to I be a part of this. This is sort of the prime example of, of how – people and books interact. Yeah. Like the, the populace and books work together. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now one of the organizers, Rhea Tep, is working at the store. Um, no kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're doing a uh, – last year we had a little area where you could make your own – like pop-up had a, a table essentially that we sold stuff on. But behind it there was an area where we could come and make your own zine – Work on a photocopier. Oh, cool. We had long reach staplers and yeah. um, all sorts of stuff for people to make things with. And we're doing the same thing this year. So, And what, what is your dream for the shop? Like in five years from now, where, where do you want the shop to be? Like how, how would it differ five years from now than what it's like today? Um, I, I would love a different, like another location. I, mm. I, would, kinda, yeah. I, would, I would love always for <clears throat> 5002 York Boulevard. Right in the heart of beautiful, for real? Yeah. That was a fire. That was a short fire alarm. They put out the fire. They put out the fire. Those guys are good, man. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, there's one fireman who just stands over. On the ball? Yep. Uh, Sorry, I'll... A second location, but you always want... Always. 5002 York Boulevard. I would love for that to always always be like the flagship or the, the... Heritage? Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for, site. Um, But I could see- That's where this movement started. Yeah, Yeah. ground zero. But I could see having more space. I could see, you know, taking it other places. I could see the idea maybe even translating, like where a place where you can enjoy books, but also make books, translate to enjoy movies or make movies or enjoy video games or make video games or enjoy painting, you know, just 
extrapolated across other forms. Love books to death, but um, it's not the only thing in my life. Yeah. Uh, what do your customers look for? Like, and what are they, what are they reading? I know it's a really general question because I'm sure you have customers of all ages and sizes, but yeah. generalizing, what do they look for? That is really, I mean, there's a lot of uh, kids' books uh, enthusiasm. Huh. Sure. Um, but it's kind of a, a neighborhood where a lot of people are having kids. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, we get asked about Spanish books a lot, which are kind of difficult to find. I wouldn't have thought so in Southwest America, but yeah. Um, uh, we try to keep as like whenever we find one, we snatch it right up. Um, you know, newer books, like <laughs> there was a, a phase where we were getting a lot of Fifty Shades of Grey requests and things like that, which generally we, we won't have kind of the newest, hottest titles. Yeah. Which is just sort of the burden of the used bookstore. I mean, I could maybe be more aggressive about going out and finding more of those things, but in line with what I said about a, a store being. Uh, extension of the personality of its owner. Yeah. It's not, you know, I don't want to read Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm sure. not. So I don't have it. And I might be <laughs> missing some dollars by not carrying things like that. But um, if it leaves room for things that I am more excited about myself, then I I feel like it's a better decision. I don't think there's a place. I don't, whenever I travel, I try to find sort of a local used bookstore like that has good reviews on Yelp, you know, to sort of like yeah. spend an hour. I can't think of a better place to just sort of like indoors to wander for an hour than a really great, cur like well-curated used bookstore. Well, the thing about, yeah, I, I was, I went to school for graphic design and my aunt. At uh, RISD, right? Yeah, at yeah. RISD. Um, and my aunt was a, a graphic designer when I was growing up. She actually used to wrap our presents in something called make readies, which are sheets of paper that have just been run through a press hundreds of times to clean off the rollers or to get a print ready to um, actually start on the fresh sheets. Um, and so they'd accumulate this insane uh, palimpsest, uh, just layered, layered, layered uh, image that was built out of things that don't didn't coordinate in any way. But Whoa. it just it was a fascinating sort of texture. Um, so I had a, a passion for printing and I, I loved books from when I was, or the, like the feel of the, the, well, the idea that they took so many different forms, like people, huh. but in what I've noticed as a designer is that as time goes on, the formatting of books becomes more and more standardized. Um, like you used to see, I, what made me think of it is just recently I was organizing books on a shelf. Um, there were paperbacks that were on their side. And so you could see the bottom of them. And a lot of paperbacks used to have colored – the edges would be painted. Painted edges is what it's called. But yeah. you'd look at the side and it would be like blue or red. Yeah. And you just don't ever see that anymore. And that's just not – probably not cost effective. Sure, yeah. I mean usually now if it's a paperback, it's pulpy. It's like that cheap yeah. almost newsprinty cut paper. Yeah. Um, but – because the standards were in place, you know, even 30 years ago or even more so going back, you'd see all these bizarre printing methods. You'd see yeah. not even really bizarre at the time. Maybe it just made sense. But it, it now when you – what things are so homogenized, you look at them and it's mm. like, wow, that's really fascinating. Something yeah. that might have just been really commonplace yeah. in the 50s is intriguing now. That's yeah. one of the great things about like – I'm really fascinated um, – we had this guy, Harvey Jason, on the show who runs Mystery Pure Books, that first edition and like rare book shop yeah. in, in West Hollywood. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about like rare books and first editions is like, is the paper and how, and you can see how the uh, the printmaking aspect has changed oh, in yeah. the industry. And having that, like an, even a, like a book that's like 100 or 150 years old, that paper is just fucking like, it's like a blanket. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And, not everyone can appreciate it, I guess, but if you spend as much time as you do like with paper in your hand and seeing how books have changed, you can really sort of appreciate like the beauty and how books used to be printed and, and, and made. Yeah. And as a, as you know, and that's one thing that as a bookstore owner, I think the word book is often used um, synonymously for with the text of the book or did you read that book? Yeah. And I yeah, understand yeah, yeah. and it's, I, it's, it makes sense. Like it's practical, but on the other hand, it's a little bit unfortunate because it takes our attention away from the physicality of books, the kind of sculptural quality that they have and all the, the, mm. the variety therein. It's, it's, 
um, you know, there are book making classes you can go and take and paper making classes. And a lot of times it, it seems a little um, impractical. Yeah. Like, well, that's not a, a book that I would ever actually read or that's not paper that I'd ever actually use. But it tells you a lot about how much goes into making the paper, the book that you would read or the paper that you do use and the variety that – the spectrum of variety that is between something outlandish like a you know crazy book made out of Ziploc bags and yeah, bubble yeah. wrapper, you know, something right. like that and just a standard mass media, you know, hardback cover book with a dust jacket. What is happening um, in Highland Park right now? Oh. <sighs> uh, I don't – it's a big question. Um, I mean there's the G word. Uh, yeah. There's a, a lot of stuff. But I, I think uh, f- as much I – it's, it's, I, I think it's pretty balanced in a way. But a lot of attention gets paid to the negative aspects, which sure. is kind of unfortunate. But if you actually spend time there um, and – I, you know, I think it's 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 I don't know. It's a great place. It's like a really there's something about it that genuinely feels small town in a way that totally. I haven't seen anywhere else totally. in Los Angeles. You I have agree. to go pretty far flung to find a place that has retained its sense of uh, community the way that that area has. How have the locals responded to your shop? It, well, I mean, that's another. It it's, it's a problematic word because what's a, a local now? I mean, I, it's yeah. funny. I have a friend, um, Rocky, uh, Raquel Jimenez. She's ninety three, I think. Uh, she's lived in the same house um, for something like seventy years or more, eighty years, something like that. She, she moved there when she was twelve. So I think I'm not positive, but I think I think she moved out for a while, but now she's back. And at any rate, she has seen. Uh, and when she moved there, she was like one of the outsiders. She and she's Latina, so when people talk about hey, like keep Island Park Brown, like um, you know, it should stay a Latino community. Her, I think her response is, well, places change, and I was one of the intruders at the you know back then, and it fluctuates. Now I think if if real estate. And I don't know much about real estate and I can't pretend to, you know, say anything truly profound about it. But that if somehow it can be balanced so that people can stay there if they want to. Yeah. But also new people can come in and families can start there and things like that, which I, I don't I, – I'd like to think is happening. Might not feel like that for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um but I think it will sort of retain it – it will help to not only retain but sort of emphasize the small town quality. And and because you, you've got to get along with the people that you interact with oh, no, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. So why not just keep it real? What books, um, in your opinion, uh, like don't get the respect that that they deserve? Is there like an author or like a book series that you well, don't think is – well, it kind of goes to my comment about books and text. Um, like I think art books or picture books, kids' books I, are treated as sort of second class. And if you read mass market fiction or nonfiction, then you're informed. Right. I'm I'm not a superlatively well-read person. I it, I'd probably shock a lot of people as a bookstore owner <laughs> if I showed you my reading list. I hope you don't dig any deeper in that. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, I don't think I'm a, a dumb person. I'm not, I'm not stupid because I haven't read all the books that you're supposed to have read. Right. Um, there are other ways of getting information. Um, uh, and I don't think that it's fair to, to count picture books, art books, kids books, um, as less. Yeah than other types of yeah. books. For, for, for a listener who, who is not hip to um, like a great design book or picture book, is there some, something that you would recommend for them to like to start, like go to their local bookstore I mean, and pick up a... Yeah, actually what? I was just looking through a magazine called Esopus, which is named after a town in upstate New York. Um, but every issue is just this 
tour de force of production uh, curiosities. There's one that I was looking through the other day. I actually had it in our window for a while. Um, you open it up to one of the um, editorials. I don't know what you'd call it. One of those sections of the book. It's these weird architectural collages, but then they've done die cutting into each of the collages so that they're sort of windows punched through every page in this oh, one wow. series of 20 pages. So when you come to the first page, you're sort of looking through all these little sections. Um, then you turn more and more pages, and the pages on the left-hand side are just blank with the die-cut areas, and the next page is another architectural collage. Wow. Um, I'm really excited right now about just a lot of the things that you see published um, by people doing it themselves, DIY publishing, mm -hmm. just because there's no filter there. There's no publisher. There's nothing in between what that person wanted to say or what they, how they wanted to make their book and the um, final product. Uh, I think for a large company that's, that's necessary, you got to do that, mm -hmm. like the whole editing, editorial process. But it's really, I mean, it's fat. You just don't see it very much anymore that somebody can be like, I want to do this, and then they just do it. So that excites me quite a bit. A lot of the I designed a couple of books, so I don't know if there's a conflict of interest here for Goldline <laughs> Press, which is uh, associated with USC. Um, they've done it's like poetry. Um, they're small books, like little yeah. soft bound books, but they're beautiful. And there's a lot of attention paid to who they select to do a book and how and. Uh, you know, I'm, I, as a designer, I was always encouraged just to defer to the author because, you know, they put all this work into writing the thing. They should have the final say in what it looks like. Yeah, and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm totally – I think that's that's great. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is that – Yeah, that's, that, that's a that, wonderful that, answer. Okay. Uh, what, what do you have – I know that your shop has events every mm -hmm. so often. And, like, how long have you been doing that? And, like, what kind of events have you guys been running at the, at the, at the shop? I think we had an event before we even opened. Uh, I think it was a CalArts uh, MFA reading. Oh, cool. We've done a few of those. We used to do uh, – or no, we still – I hope still. Um, a friend of mine, Diana Arterian, puts on a, a, a series called Sumar, which happens during the summer. And it's always uh, five or six readers and then a musical uh, performance. Oh, Cool. Those have been amazing. Um, I love music performances. And I've been told by a couple of musicians that bookstores are particularly good at something about the acoustics, the way the books sort of absorb sound. No shit. Yeah, and we've got really high ceilings. So I think between those two things, it's a, it's a great environment. Uh, we had oh, some amazing musical performances. Um, a guy named Andrew Choate, uh, he's done a couple, a couple there so far, and I, I'm hoping we're going to do a lot more. Um, of just improvisational, not jazz, but not, you know, it's mm -hmm. jazz instruments, but like sort of avant-garde improvis improvisational stuff. Cool. Which is totally up my alley. So. Yeah. Uh, if someone's coming into your shop um, selling books, which I've done a couple of times, I've brought a couple of boxes of books. And I sent you right out. You did. Like, None of these. <laughs> Why don't you get some taste, man? Yeah, it was, was shame. Embarrassing. It was real shaming for you. And yet, I brought you here to be a guest on my show. <laughs> uh, what what books are you buying? Like what 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 books that you're digging out of a box that you say, yes, I will resell this, and I'll um, give you store credit for this. I think I still have like eleven dollars of store credit over there. You might. Yeah. I'll check into it. I'll cool. send you a. Please do. An email later. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I, I hesitate to put specific things out there. It's more kind of, I know when I see it. Yeah. Like it could be, I, you know, there are some versions of books that I might not want, but then another version of the same book is amazing somehow. Just like, huh. you know, and it couldn't, and it's not even That's... like it's expensive and old, but. A, a, we, if a paperback copy of a book has an amazing illustration on the front and it just has a feeling mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. That's something I, I, I want in there. Well, yeah, that's something yeah. that I want to, to say like, look, this is a cool object. Yes. Right. Beyond being also an amazing work of literature. Right. It's something that has, you know, you can download the work of literature. That's the promise that Google books has 
you know, made real or the Kindle and the iPad. But if you're going to go to the bother, if you're going to go to the, go to the, what is the bother? If you're going to go to the trouble of going all the yes. way down to a bookstore, you are moving your physical body through physical space, going to a physical location. You're probably in the mood for something that has a physical uh, yeah, quality to it. Tangible. Yeah. Um, so I, I like, I like, I mean, usually what we get is a bag full of sort of last season's hotter books that people have read. They don't need it anymore because, I mean, it's there's a million of them out there. I mean, how many issues of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo have you seen? That, like, lime green, yellow cover. That's It's right. like I have nightmares about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great book in a way, but I don't, you know, need any more of them. I, I could make a little house out of them. Um, but... I don't know if some if somebody dug up like a Swiss edition or what is it Swedish Swedish edition yeah, of yeah. that book. Right. I couldn't read it. I don't know many people that could, but it, it's kind of a cool artifact of the history behind that work of literature. More than any other bookshop in Los Angeles, um and we've spoken to it during this interview, you are treating your books as art. And going into your shop, it's a different feel than going into a skylight or whatever. It's, it's, like, it's like an art gallery yeah. in a way. And it's this great mix of used bookstore, art gallery, and you're treating the, the subjects as pieces of art. And I think that's what makes your shop special and why I love spending time in there. Thank you. Yeah. I think that that sounds great. I like that. I like that takeaway. I tell, think that's a good thing. Tell my listeners what the uh, what the address, what the website is, and what the address is, so they can go and, and buy your objects. Okay, we are Pop Hop Books and Print. Pop Hop, P O P dash H O P. Yeah, and uh, at the pophop dot com, definite article pophop dot com, and we are at five thousand two York Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. 90042. Roby Clark has been my guest. He operates a small business and he's a good man. Thanks, Roby. Thank you, Nate. It's been it's been a joy. I've always wanted to I've like one of the only things I've ever rehearsed in the mirror about yes. doing an interview is like the sign off. I always love people. Terry Gross is always like, Well, thank you so much. It's been a joy having and then the guy, you know, it's really been a joy being here. And I <laughs> I've always thought like was it really? <laughs> what are the I guess, other? Yeah, I mean, it just sounded like you were talking to a lady for a while, but sure. What are, I wonder what are the other sign offs that you've rehearsed? Is it just that one that you just delivered? I don't know. Well, rehearsed, like in the like. Here's mine. I will well, go. But I, I've rehearsed them for Terry Gross, so I'm kind of. I don't want to spoil them. Fair enough. You're great. It's not it has nothing. It's not. I'm like. It's not like I'm comparing you and Terry Gross. It's two very different apples and oranges. Yeah, seriously. Sure. Mine would be this. I've actually been a guest on the Lot Show. Can you believe that? You have? Yeah. That's amazing. Is she as tiny as uh, like the pictures make her look? My brother and I were on together. We both um, were on The Daily Show at the same time. And yeah. then we had, um, he, we moved and did different shows. And so they had both of us on. And we were sitting together in a studio in Los Angeles. And we had our headphones on. And the producer was on the line saying, all right, um, you know, we'll start in a few minutes. And all of a sudden we heard her, her, her voice go, um, hi, are, are you guys there? And my brother, we looked at each other like, holy fucking shit. It's like fucking Michael Jordan. We're like, <laughs> yes. And she goes, this is not a joke. She goes, oh, hi, um, my name's Terry. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the interview. Like you, like you don't know who she is, right? <laughs> it was like, hi, I'm Barack Obama. And yeah. I'm going to be your president. Like, no, I, I know Terry. Has, has anyone told you what's going on? There's a, a, yeah. a, a device that transmits radio waves. <laughs> and I'm the host of the show that is... Sent out on the radio waves. There's this network. We don't run ads. It's public radio. I was so. Well, I still, her... I still don't really understand that one. But how does yeah, that happen? It's but it's amazing. Public. Yeah. When I heard her in my ears the first time, it was like holy shit. Yeah. My sign off. If it was, if I was on another NPR show, would be something like this. <clears throat> say, uh, th- th- say thanks for having me. Okay. Well. Thank you so much for being here. It's been Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Are you That's what I would do. Okay. That's good. Do you want to try another another sign off? Let me give you one more. Roby Clark's been my guest. Uh it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show.
Let's move on to act three. Thanks again to Roby for coming in. I, I always am fascinated about how those used bookstores, these art shops get opened and how they're, how they're maintained and how they work. Because it seems like it's such an enormous risk to open a shop like the shop that, that Roby opened. Uh, but it just, I don't know, just things, I think it takes courage to open that, those kinds of shops. And when they work, they really work. And that shop really works. So next time you're in Northeast Los Angeles, uh, head down to Pop-Pop. It's great. It's such a great shop. And he's a really smart, clever guy. And there's a lot of great stuff in there. Um, it's a really mom and pop shop. And uh, it's worth supporting. Uh, so thank you to Roby for coming in and chatting. Uh, we're in the last act of the show. The final piece is read by my dear friend Jessica Chaffin of Rana and Beverly fame. If you're into comedy podcasts, you know Rana and Beverly. Or if you're just into comedy, you know Rana and Beverly. They've been together for, God, 13 years? Maybe maybe longer. Um it's Jamie Dumbo and Jessica Chaffin. They play sort of middle-aged um, Jews from Boston who are your sort of typical Jewish mothers, um, but they're also <laughs> like sociopaths and lunatics. And they have a show on Earwolf called Rana and Beverly. I've been on it twice, and I've had so much fun with them. But I've known those, those girls for years, years, 15 years now. And uh, Jessica came in today to read the very first chapter to... Girl in a Band, which is Kim Gordon's memoir. It came out last week in February. It's brand new. It's hot off the presses. And it's sort of following in the um, Patti Smith, Just for Kids mold. Um, she's, re she's, a, you know, she's an artist first and foremost before she was a musician. And she's a really good writer. And she's very lyrical, obviously, because of what she does for a living. Um, and she speaks incredibly candidly about her upbringing and the and what everyone of course is fascinated by her separation and you know divorce from Thurston Moore uh, of uh, Sonic Youth if, if Sonic Youth of course is one of the most important noise you know garage rock band from the indie scene maybe in the last 25 years if not the most important one they were doing things long before any, anyone was anyone else was doing them and they had this perfect marriage like it was this amazing amazingly cool punk rock couple who like made it through the world of rock and roll and had a family and you know lived in Northampton and they had this new awesome New York, New York art art scene world and then it all collapsed and when that story broke out I think it broke a lot of you know music fans hearts because everyone was so invested in their marriage like well it can work if they can do it so we can do it um, and the first chapter I, I had Chaffin read the first chapter it's three and a half pages long but. It just gets right into what you want to know, which is like what it's like to be on stage with a guy who you've known for 26 years and who you are about to get divorced from and how horrible and shocking and brutal that must be. She just jumps right in. I think the, fir the first, yeah, the, 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 the title of the first chapter is The End. Um, so I'm reading this book right now. It's great. It's really good. I'm, I'm psyched to finish it. And Chaffin read the first chapter. So here is uh, Jessica Chaffin reading from Kim Gordon's Girl in a Band. Here's Jessica. The end. When we came out on stage for our last show, the night was all about the boys. Outwardly, everyone looked more or less the same as they had for 30 years. Inside was a different story. Thurston double-slapped our bass guitarist, Mark Eibold, on the shoulder and loped across the stage, followed by Lee Ronaldo, our guitarist, and then Steve Shelley, our drummer. I found that gesture so phony, so childish, such a fantasy. Thurston has many acquaintances, but with the few male friends he had. He had never spoken of anything personal and he's never been the shoulder-slapping type. It was a gesture that called out, I'm back, I'm free, I'm solo. I was the last one to come on, making sure to mark off some distance between Thurston and me. I was exhausted and watchful. Steve took his place behind his drum set like a dad behind a desk. The rest of us armed ourselves with our instruments like a battalion. 
an army that just wanted the bombardment to end. It was pouring, slanting sheets of rain. South American rain is like rain anywhere else. It makes you feel the same, too. They say when a marriage ends that little things you never noticed before practically make your brain split open. All week that had been true for me whenever Thurston was around. Maybe he felt the same, or maybe his head was somewhere else. I didn't really want to know, to be honest. Offstage, he was constantly texting and pacing around the rest of us like a manic, guilty kid. After 30 years, tonight was Sonic Youth's final concert. The SWU Music and Arts Festival was taking place in Itu, just outside Sao Paulo, Brazil, 5,000 miles from our home in New England. It was a three-day-long event broadcast on Latin American television and streamed online, too, with big corporate sponsors like Coca-Cola and Heineken. The headliners were Faith No More, Kanye West, The Black Eyed Peas, Peter Gabriel, Stone Temple Pilots, Snoop Dogg, Soundgarden, people like that. We were probably the smallest act on the bill. It was a strange place for things to come to an end. Over the years, we'd played lots of rock festivals. The band saw them as a necessary evil, although the do-or-die aspect of having no soundcheck before you played made them sort of thrilling, too. Festivals mean backstage trailers and tents, gear and power cords everywhere, smelly porta-potties, and sometimes running into musicians whom you like personally or professionally but never get to see or meet or talk to. Equipment can break, delays happen, the weather's unpredictable. There are times you can't hear a thing in the monitors, but you just go for it and try to get the music across to a sea of people. Festivals also mean a shorter set. Tonight, we would close things out with 70 minutes of adrenaline, just as we'd done the past few days at festivals in Peru, Uruguay, Buenos Aires, and Chile. What was different from past tours and festivals was that Thurston and I weren't speaking to each other. We had exchanged maybe 15 words all week. At 27 years of marriage, things had fallen apart between us. In August, I had asked him to move out of our house in Massachusetts, and he had. He was renting an apartment a mile away and commuting back and forth to New York. The couple everyone believed was golden and normal and eternally intact, who gave younger musicians hope they could outlast a crazy rock and roll world, was now just another cliche of middle-aged relationship failure. A male midlife crisis, another woman, a double life. Thurston mimed a mock-startled reaction as a tech passed him his guitar. At 53, he was still the shaggy, skinny kid from Connecticut I first met at a downtown New York club when he was 22 and I was 27. He told me later he liked my flip-up sunglass shades and his jeans, old-school Pumas, and untucked-in white button-down Oxford. He looked like a boy, frozen in some diorama, a 17-year-old who didn't want to be seen in the company of his mother— or any woman for that matter. He had the Mick Jagger lips and the lanky arms and legs he didn't seem to know what to do with, and the wariness you see in tall men who don't want to overpower other people with their height. His long brown hair camouflaged his face, and he seemed to like it that way. That week, it was as if he'd wound back time, erased our nearly 30 years together. Our life had turned back into my life for him. He was an adolescent lost in fantasy again, and the rock star showboating he was doing on stage got under my skin. <clears throat> Sonic Youth had always been a democracy, but we all had our roles, too. I took my place in the center of the stage. It didn't start out that way, and I'm not sure when it changed. It was a choreography that dated back 20 years to when Sonic Youth first signed with Geffen Records. It was then that we learned that for high-end music labels, the music matters, but a lot comes down to how the girl looks. The girl anchors the stage, sucks in the male gaze, and depending on who she is, throws her own gaze back into the audience. Since our music can be weird and dissonant, having me center stage also makes it that much easier to sell the band. Look, it's a girl. She's wearing a dress, and she's with those guys, so things must be okay. But that's not how we'd ever operated as an indie band, so I was always conscious to not be too much out front. I could barely hold it together during the first song, Brave Men Run. At one point, my voice fell like it was scraping against its own bottom, and then the bottom fell out. It was an old, very early song from our album, Bad Moon Rising. I wrote the lyrics on Eldridge Street, New York City, in a tenement railroad apartment where Thurston and I were living at the time. 
song always makes me think of the pioneer women in my mother's family slogging their way out to California through Panama and my grandmother being a single parent during the Depression with no real income. Lyrically, the song reminded me of how I first brought together my art influences into my music. I took the title from an Ed Ruscha painting that shows a clipper ship angling through waves and whitecaps. But that was three decades ago. Tonight, Thurston and I didn't look at each other once, and when the song was done, I turned my shoulders to the audience so no one in the audience or the band could see my face, though it had little effect. Everything I did and said was broadcast from one of the two 40-foot-high onstage video screens. For whatever reasons, sympathy or sadness or the headlines and articles about Thurston's and my breakup that followed us wherever we went that week in Spanish, Portuguese, and English, we had the passionate support of South American audiences. Tonight's crowd stretched out in front of us and blurred with the dark clouds around the stadium. Thousands of rain-soaked kids, wet hair, naked backs, tank tops, raised hands holding cell phones and girls on dark boys' shoulders. The bad weather had followed us through South America from Lima to Uruguay to Chile and now to Sao Paulo, a corny movie mirror of the strangeness between Thurston and me. The festival stages were like musical versions of awkward domestic tableau, a living room or a kitchen or a dining room where the husband and the wife pass each other in the morning and make themselves separate cups of coffee with neither one acknowledging the other or any kind of shared history in the room. After tonight, Sonic Youth was done. Our life as a couple and as a family was already done. We still had our apartment on Lafayette Street, New York, though not for much longer. And I would keep on living with our daughter Coco in our house in western Massachusetts that we'd bought in 1999 from a local school. Hello, Thurston called out genially to the crowd just before the band launched into Death Valley 69. Two nights earlier in Uruguay, Thurston and I had to duet together on another early song, Cotton Crown. Its lyrics were about love and mystery and chemistry and dreaming and staying together. It was basically an ode to New York City. In Uruguay, I was too upset to sing, and Thurston had to finish by himself. But I would make it through Death Valley. Lee, Thurston, and I, and then just the two of us stood there. My about-to-be ex-husband and I faced that mass of bobbing wet Brazilians, our voices together, spell-checking the old words. And for me, it was a staccato soundtrack of surreal, raw energy and anger and pain. Hit it. Hit it. Hit it. I don't think I'd ever felt so alone in my whole life. Maybe they'll get back together. Maybe they still, you know, it's doubtful. Uh, it's real doubtful. Oof. But it's great. Isn't she great? Just She just lays it on out there. She just tells the truth. Uh, and Chaffin is wonderful. Thank you, Jessica, for coming in and doing that. Uh, it's a, uh, it's an excerpt from Kim Gordon's Girl in a Band, her new memoir that just came out. If you like, um, Sonic Youth or you like any sort of music, musical memoirs, biographies, this is a sort of must pick up. And if you like Patti Smith's, um, Just Kids, I think you'll like this one too. So go grab it and check it out. Um, and that's our show. That's our show. We had, uh, Kim Gordon and, um, Neil Simon. <laughs> And Roby Clark, what a strange mix of people. Um, again, go get Richard Price's The Whites, which is a badass New York detective novel. Uh, Richard Price is so great. Go pick that up at your local bookstore and read it. And send us your thoughts uh, at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter. We're at uh, read, read Aloud Pod. Um, follow us on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at I'm Nick Cordry. And uh, we'll have a week off next week. Then we come back with more. And I'm excited to bring it to you. I'm Nate Cordry. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Pop. 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 Pop.
Wolfpop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.